<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Wake up every morning with just the news. All the news and none of the noise. There. Good morning. Welcome to Just the News AM. I am Carrie Sheffield and glad you are here with us. So we are going to go into lots of different topics. We know that both the House and the Senate did pass a stimulus bill. If you make under $75,000, expect to get by the end of the year possibly. As early as next week, they're going to be going out a $600 check per person. We're going to talk more about that. Some conservatives have a fight about it. They say that there's a lot of wasteful spending in it. We'll get to that. But in the meantime, I want to bring in an expert on China issues who is very concerned about something, about the possible Biden administration and what it might do on China and investing in Chinese defense companies. Good morning. Good morning. So walk us through your concerns here. Well, Carrie, for over 20 years, the Chinese Communist Party companies have had unrestricted, unmonitored access to the U.S. capital markets, that is, our stock and bond markets. They've raised in the trillions of dollars uh, from some 160 million unwitting American retail investors. Uh, this is a travesty at the face of it. We're talking about companies that are involved in major human rights abuses, such as equipping concentration camps in Xinjiang, China, uh, that are incarcerating over a million Uyghurs. You have uh, the building in the militarization of the South China Sea, advanced weapons manufacturers. In other words, all kinds of corporate bad actors who are in the portfolios of every, virtually every American investor today, courtesy of Wall Street and courtesy of the fact that we've fallen down on regulatory the regime, we haven't uh, held their feet to the fire on federal securities laws, and the, and the list goes on. So when it comes to what President Trump, President Trump has tried to, through executive action, to block these investments, what are your concerns about a loophole through what Trump did, but then also about what Biden might do? Well, uh, the president has stood up to this issue, and uh, he issued an executive order not long ago that would bar U.S. investors from any investments in Chinese military companies. That is on the list uh, put together by the Pentagon of PLA-affiliated Chinese companies. Uh, co very courageously, he's, he's tried to stop that. Uh, there are Arguments on the other side uh, at the uh, in the Wall Street community, uh, Treasury and elsewhere, that perhaps subsidiaries shouldn't be included or index funds shouldn't be included. Now, these are major opportunities for China. Uh, this would be a vast uh, dilution and diminution of the impact of this executive order. So I think that the, the president is going to weigh in on this. I don't expect to see a major watering down now. I think that we've come back from a perilous situation there internally. Uh, and as far as the Biden administration is concerned, 
there'll be an instinct perhaps to unwind these measures to stop the funding by the American people unwittingly of the Chinese Communist Party, the military, and the human rights abusers. Uh, but he'll have a he'll have a hard time uh, getting this thing uh, turned back. Uh, after all, uh, to do so would be to suggest that a president wants the American people to unknowingly be funding uh, the People's Liberation Army and concentration camps and the like. I think that's a very hard argument to make, and I think you'd agree. Certainly, I, I, there's certainly no evidence of that. But in terms of what you said about your concern that they might be winding this down, what leads you to believe that? Well, there was a cabinet-level meeting on Monday, as I understand it, that um, really lined up uh, Defense Department, State Department, which has played a vital role in this, as well as the National Security Council and the Treasury Department and perhaps other agencies. But those are the principles involved in this. And they laid out their arguments on both sides. Uh, I'm, I'm of the opinion now uh, that the president may have put his uh, finger on the scale, so to speak, here. Um, and uh, we may be in, uh, looking good in terms of preserving the integrity and the impact of this all-important executive order uh, 395, uh, what is it, I'll, I'll get the number for you later, but leave it to say that it's a very important one on the PLA-related companies. And in terms of Biden, though, what leads you to have concerns that he might roll this back? Well, his track record on China is not a positive one. I think that's a fair statement. And uh, you're seeing evidence of concerns and baggage that he's bringing to office in that connection. I think, therefore, uh, bringing back a lot of the Obama folks who have been responsible for allowing uh, the Chinese militarization of the South China Sea. They built all of those islands, made them fortresses. They have advanced weapon systems on those islands now. Uh, that happened all under the Obama and Biden team. Uh, we have to remember that. So there's been a permissiveness. I hope that they've gotten religion on this. I hope that they understand that this was very misguided not to stand up to China, and we won't see a repeat. But you can't be sure when Wall Street's equities are involved and they're going to be putting excruciating pressure on him to dilute these Trump-era measures. Uh, we'll have to see if he can stand up to that and, and defend the average American investor that doesn't want their money, their money, mind you, uh, to be going to these kind of malevolent purposes designed to destroy everything we hold dear. I want to ask you, in the remaining time we have, a Congressman Mike Gallagher, who's a former military officer, he wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal saying that he opposes the nomination that Biden has put up for Defense Secretary uh, Army General Lloyd Austin retired. And part of why he says he opposes it, not only because he hasn't had the time statutorily that you need to be out of uh, the uniform to lead the Pentagon, he says he opposes it for that reason, but he also said that he thinks, you mentioned the South China Sea, he said that General Austin doesn't have enough experience in China, that his background is more in the Middle East, and he says this is worried about the future for him as far as what the country uh, would be concerned. What's your reaction to that? Well, I'm frankly not well enough equipped uh, to understand uh, the implications of General Lloyd uh, being nominated for DOD. I've heard the same reports that you have. On the other hand, I did hear some positive reports about the people around him, 
uh, folks that he's worked with a long time. And there's been uh, there's been some some encouraging remarks about his willingness to stand up to China. It's a little bit mixed. Um, I'm hoping that uh, for the best, as we all are. And uh, I just uh, this is an existential threat, the likes of which we've never faced. All right, Roger Robinson, we appreciate He's the former chairman of the Congressional U.S. China Economic and Security Review Commission. Very credentialed folks there. Stay with us. We'll be right back with the state senator from Michigan. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Hey there, good morning, and welcome back here to Just the News AM. I am Carrie Sheffield, and glad you are here with us. So we are going to be talking here in a moment with a state senator from Michigan about something that is very controversial, the fact that the state of Michigan is looking into and issuing subpoenas to two major cities in the state of Michigan. One is the city of Detroit and a nearby suburb of Livonia. And the issue here is about whether these cities have preserved the evidence around the election and how it was run. And State Senator Ruth Johnson says that election integrity should not be a partisan issue. She says that this information needs to be preserved. And this is something, the big question is about whether this will go beyond uh, just you know electoral mechanics here or will the state senators here in Michigan want to block any sort of electoral certifications? That's a big question I have for her. I'm also going to talk later in the show with some guests about a big issue that the president has been tweeting about, and that is a group of conservatives have put out a petition basically urging states in key swing states to say we don't want to certify the results. We'll get to that in a second, but in the meantime, I want to bring in Michigan State Senator Ruth Johnson. Good morning, Senator. All right, Senator, I want to ask you, so in terms of the subpoena that was just issued by a congressional committee there at your state legislature, it was a joint committee for both your House and your Senate chambers, you guys issued the subpoena to Detroit and Livonia to retain electoral evidence. What was the rationale behind this? Um, well, there were uh, counts that were off in both and um, in Detroit, we had a number of people that signed affidavits and reports that they restricted the access of poll challengers in a very discriminatory way towards Republican poll challengers and that there was a bias in the adjudication of ballots. So um, if it's not uncommon that somebody has a little tear or coffee stain or something like that, both a Republican and a Democrat sit together and refill out those ballots because the machine won't count them kinds of problems. So in terms of the sort of end game here with the subpoenas, what are you expecting or what are you hoping to gain by issuing these? For me, as past uh, Secretary of State and a clerk, 
and now chair of elections in the Senate, I think it's so important that we find out where the system where there was cheating, where anything happened that may impact elections, and get ready to make uh, some new laws, maybe higher penalties and some different ways we do elections. Our, our Secretary of State hijacked the local clerk's uh, job of sending out absentee ballots only to those that request them. She sent them to everybody on the list, which included over 800,000 people that had moved, died, non-citizens, and we even had a 16-year-old that said she received one. And in terms of the election, do you expect the legislature to move at all because of these questions, because of litigation, because of audits that are ongoing? Do you expect the legislature, the Republican leadership there to try to either stop the certification or have some sort of action to block the Michigan delegates? There may be some that uh, may try, but um, really... um when you look at the difference, the president lost by 154,000 votes. Uh, Michigan has got uh, in that group that we say that could swing. We uh, have the largest total. If you look at the numbers, I do not believe that there would be enough votes, even with all the cheating and irregularities. But I do think it's of utmost importance that we get our um, get our laws in place to make sure that we fix it. I just don't see the numbers there. Detroit is 94% Democrat, so no matter what, you weren't going to get a lot more Republican votes out of there. Matter of fact, our president got more votes this time out of Detroit than um, he's ever than he got in the last election. And when you say cheating, walk us through what you're what you've seen on that. Well, I mean, as I was saying, when they have to redo a ballot because somehow it has a bad mark on it or something's wrong with it. Um, there were reports that they were used. They were re- replicating the ones that voted Democrat, not the ones that voted Republican. And um, there always are a number of ballots. Fifty thousand in Detroit is a high number for sure. And there were frequent mismatches between the absentee ballot that was issued and the one that was returned. So that means the stub number on the ballot didn't match what the clerk recorded as the ballot number that was issued. So. Um, we're, I'm very concerned about some of the things that happened, and, and we had some uh, wacky person call into Flint that's high high Democrat area and tell them, oh, don't come to vote. The lines are long. We have COVID, and so uh, vote tomorrow. So, uh, you know, we have some bad actors. We need to stop them. This was uh, really a frustrating year for me because as the Secretary of State was sending out unsolicited absentee ballot requests that were completely filled out without a law that gave her the right to do that. Uh, They went to so many people with no checks and balances. As a matter of fact, the main check and balance, which is called to verify them, if we have them on a list that's flagged that says that they've moved because another state has let us know that they've surrendered their driver's license, um, they they just, the, the definition of verify was gutted. There's nothing left in it. Those have to be verified every time because, unfortunately, we we do not have a national system that lets us know when somebody surrenders their driver's license, we have nothing to make them surrender their voter registration card. So those are all big concerns for me that have to be fixed, and I'm just very disappointed in the current Secretary of State after being the Secretary of State. We uh, we were number one in the country for getting people registered, but the key word is eligible people registered to vote. When she said, 
sent to non-citizens. She said it was a glitch in the computer system, the invitation to vote. So um, lots of irregularities, lots of things need to be fixed. There was gaming the system, which I would say sending out pre-filled out absentee ballot requests to people that don't live here or um, have died or non-citizens or underage. Those are all big issues for me. Sure. And you've raised the concern also about the absentee ballots uh, claiming that uh, there was a news article where you claim that they're illegal, that she had sent out so many of these ballots. When you say 100, you know, more than 150,000 differential between Trump and Biden, what's the extent do you think of the problematic ballots here? Well, I've asked for an audit. I've asked I asked from day one to get uh, subpoena power. Um, now um, it has been given to oversight, but I saw what she was do- doing early on, our, our current Secretary of State, and I was very concerned about it. And I have been asking since the election for a compre- comprehensive independent audit, and I will keep pushing for that. We won't know until we have a complete audit done exactly where all the problems are at and then attack each one one by one. We have another election coming right around the corner for um, uh, offices in both the state and um, and, uh, and and federal elections, and we need to get going on this. Every day that we wait is every day that puts us another step behind. And you mentioned immigrants who are non-citizens who are, were receiving ballots. How many do you think there were there? They were receiving absentee ballot requests, not the actual ballot. Uh, I don't know how many. Again, um, I've asked the Secretary of State to do an audit. She was very difficult to have come in. She would wait weeks when I knew stuff was going on. It needed to be looked at right away to the uh, Senate Elections Committee. I asked her for three hours. She gave us a half hour. And that's why I thought it would be helpful to have subpoena power because she really was not helpful. And you have to have transparency in elections. I don't care what side wins. We need to have faith in our system. And little by little, it's been eroded until... That's why you see people so upset, and rightly so, because it's been an effort by our Secretary of State to gut the integrity of our elections. All right, State Senator, we got to leave it right there. Thank you so much. We appreciate your time this morning. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. And stay with us, folks. We'll be right back with Kevin McCullough. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Good morning and welcome back here to Justin News AM. I am Carrie Sheffield and glad you're with us. Joining me is Kevin McCullough. He's the radio host extraordinaire. Good morning, Kevin. Hey, Carrie. Merry Christmas to you. Merry Christmas to you. So let's talk about what conservatives have been doing. The president tweeted out a link to a website about conservatives. Many of them signed their names saying that the electors should challenge and should have a an alternative slate of electors in some of these key battleground states. What chance does this have of being successful? You know, uh, I, I did not do too well on election night with my election prediction map, so I've I've gotten very hesitant to predict what's gonna uh, what's gonna come out. I do think that watching the day to day activity is is very 
I don't know, inf- informative on some level. Um, I know that uh, uh, Real America's Voice has been covering the uh, Turning Point USA conference in the evening. And if you've seen any of the energy coming off the people that are attending that, you know that the, the Trump supporters are as fired up as they were going into the election. So I, 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 have, a, I have a hard time thinking that there is going to be an actual overturning of, of what the media has kind of established as the narrative. But I do think that we deserve to report and talk about every step of the way. And who knows, uh, that that massive mountain that might be climbed might yet find a miracle in it. John Eastman, who filed the president's lawsuit in the Supreme Court uh, this week for the writ, um, says it's a, it's a steep climb. Uh, but he he joined the the cause and wrote the suit because he believes in the justness of the cause. And I think that that's where a lot of Americans are at. You know, 75 million Americans voted for President Trump. Uh, that's nearly 12 million more than he got in 2016. And under every single rubric of of measurement, that would have been a blowout reelection victory. The fact that it wasn't still doesn't sit right with a lot of people. And when there's so many non-transparent, non-signature verified, unsigned, uh, dead person ballots that are sitting out there, uh, and, and, and public officials that have the power to make everything transparent and clear choosing not to, I think that rubs Americans pretty wrong. So over in Pennsylvania, we know that the Republican state legislators have been pushing to have the electors uh, contest the Biden win. Do you think they'll be successful there? I don't know if the state legislatures are going to do that, but you've got commitments from six congressmen to challenge the electors on January the 6th, the most recent of which was Matt Gates this weekend. Um, and I think you've got at least one to three senators that are willing to do that. If that is the case, then you, you, don't, you don't necessarily need the state legislatures to do anything. And you've got seven states that sent dueling electors. We've never seen this in the modern era. This is this is like historic, groundbreaking uh, stuff. Every social studies and civics and history class should be watching this day to day because of what we're learning about the constitutional process here. But at the end of the day, I think that uh, we're 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 still in for some, you know, roller coaster turns before we're done here. And what do you say to people who say that what Republicans and conservatives have been doing is undermining democracy, that it is, in some cases they said, subversive, or it's even being a traitor? Oh, I've, I've been called that plenty on Twitter in the last 24 hours. I, I, think it's, I think it's ironic that these voices who are kind of the loudest drunks at the bar uh, keep shouting all this stuff, when in reality, they either sat by or parroted the Russia hoax for four years, the illegitimate impeachment that they tried to pull off. Uh, they they make claims that the president is getting rich off the presidency when his uh, total net worth has gone down every year that he's been in office. Um, I think it's ironic that those people that didn't have any problems with undermining the legitimate election of Donald Trump in 2016 are now screaming from the highest mountaintop that he's undermining democracy in 2020. I, it, I just don't buy it. And to be honest, I, I think that the president and all of the people that are pushing forward on every front are doing us a favor. If you ever want to have trust in your electoral process again, you better answer some of these questions. There are millions, tens of millions of American voters who are not only just dissatisfied with the outcome, but they don't trust that the process had integrity to it. And that in the end is what America is. If you think about the great idea of what America is, it's self-determination with checks and balances. And if we don't have checks and balances and we don't have the true ability to determine for ourselves who leads us, we're not that country anymore. 
And I want to turn to the stimulus bill because we've been reporting how just by a very large margin, just overnight, the House and Senate both adopted the stimulus package. The president is expected to sign it. However, we saw a lot of conservatives on Twitter saying the president should veto this bill because they say it has a lot of stuff that has nothing to do with COVID. You have two new Smithsonian museums that were approved for funding in this. Uh, so you have Congressman even, Congressman Jody Heiss, Representative Ralph Norman, signing a letter urging the president to veto this bill. And a lot of these folks, I spoke with someone from Heritage yesterday, say that this spending is wasteful because it's not really targeted. For example, the COVID stimulus checks are going to people who make $75,000 or less. That is not middle class if you're looking at the definition of household income. That's more like 45000 per person or even 35000 per person. So one person making $75,000 or less will get a $600 check. What is your take on this? Should the president veto this? I think this is a really bad bill, and the more that we learn about it, the more that I have problems with it. Uh, we are learning, for instance, that while Congress makes 130000 each, uh, that they have argued for about nine months about whether to give you $600 of taxpayer money. Uh, meanwhile, in the same legislation, 5,500 pages that, according to you know Nancy Pelosi tradition, I guess they have to pass before they read it, um, they are actually uh, trying to give away $250 million to uh, the Palestinian authorities and other terrorist associated groups in the Middle East. I don't think that there's a single American that if they knew that would say, yes, let's pass this today. I've, I've heard this bill say that it's targeted and it's much more tame than what the $4 trillion bill was. I'm sure that's true, but I still don't like what's in this 900 billion version. And uh, when I when I think of COVID relief, I don't think of people providing border security for Middle Eastern countries. I think of people that have suffered from the out, uh, from the ravages of COVID-19 here and need the help here. Wait, so are you saying that, that the Palestinian people, bill, that Palestinian money was passed? Uh, it's included in the 5,500 pages from what I've been reading this morning. And if that is in fact the case, then that is significantly problematic. And sorry, you were saying you encourage folks. I encourage voters to, to let their uh, representatives know what they think about this. Um, it, if, since they've over, uh, overwhelmingly passed it, I guess it's a little bit late, but they should still know where they stand on it because this is not what we sent our congressional representatives to Washington to accomplish. And in terms of this Palestinian funding, do you think this would undermine what the president has been doing with his peace deals over there? I don't think there's any question about that. Uh, and if you are looking at a potential Biden administration coming in already pledging that they're going to rejoin the Iranian uh, deal as quickly as they possibly can, we've got significant uh, problems that we are facing when it comes to foreign policy in the Middle East. And I hope and trust that the Abraham Accords will perform some long-term good in the region, but we're certainly not going to be building on that good with the Iranian deal and gifts to people like this when it is really not necessary. All right, Kevin McCullough, we always appreciate your perspective. Carrie, thanks for having me. And Merry Christmas. We'll stay with this, folks. Speaking of Christmas, I have Jeff Myers coming up. He's an expert on how to talk about these hot button issues over the kitchen table for Christmas. Those awkward conversations or Hanukkah that maybe you have a relative coming over and you just don't really want to talk about it. He's going to tell us how you can approach it with grace and making sure that the family's ties still stay together. Stick with us for here for Jeff Myers.
Hey there, good morning, and welcome back here to Just the News AM. I'm Carrie Sheffield, and glad you're with us. So joining me is Jeff Myers. He's president of Summit Ministries, which targets young people to talk about Christianity and share their Christian faith. Good morning, Jeff. Good morning. How are you, Carrie? Doing well. So let's talk about the Christmas holiday. So you have family members getting together, the hot button issues of religion and politics. How do you handle this with grace? This is going to be hard. Everything is political this year. COVID is political. The elections obviously are political. Even football is political. There is no escaping difficult conversations. And what we do at Summit Ministries is work with young adults, helping them prepare to have awkward conversations with their professors at the university. So I figure if we can train a 16-year-old or an 18-year-old to have a tough conversation with a Marxist professor, we can probably help you with your mother-in-law or with your aunt or whoever it happens to be. And so what's your training? What are the tips? So the strategy is really simple. It's asking questions. And the reason you ask questions rather than try to make statements, at least at the outset, uh, well, for a couple of reasons. First, the conversations never begin the way you want them to, right? They never show up and, and occur exactly the way they do for Ben Shapiro or Charlie Kirk on their videos. So you don't know exactly what to say or what facts to bring up. The second thing is, if you ask questions, then you're demonstrating interest in another person. So I've got five questions, depending on how much time we have, we can get through them. But the first one is, what do you mean by that? You know, if you you and maybe a Marxist could be conversing about justice, liberty, law, you're using the same words, but you're using a totally different dictionary. So it's important to, to recognize that you're, you've got to ask that question, what do you mean by that? And even questions about atheism. I was visiting with a guy who, who said, there is no God. And instead of saying, yes, there is, I just asked him, what do you mean by God? And he said, oh, you know, the big grandfather figure in the sky throws lightning bolts down on people he doesn't like. And I said, Zeus? I, I don't believe in Zeus either. I guess we actually have something in common. And he laughed, and it led to a really good conversation. So that's the first one. What do you mean by that? You tell me, lead me if you want me to go through all of the others real quick or what you'd like to do. Give us a couple more. Yeah, okay. Second one is, do you think that's the whole story? Because usually the conversations, especially around the dinner table, pop out when somebody says something really cynical or, you know, a little bit snooty, uh, you know, passive aggressive, right? That's how families work. So just, just say, instead, just stay calm and ask, do you think that's the whole story? I had a professor who said, let me summarize for you the whole of Judeo-Christian history. God is a mean bully. And I, I just, I didn't, I wanted to respond. I wanted to give arguments, but I just said, do you think that's the whole story? And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, you just summarized 4,000 years of history in one sentence. Do you think that's the whole story? And he said, well, of course not. I'm just exaggerating to try to make a point. I looked around at my classmates and realized they had all checked out. Like he had lost them because they realize now that I, as the Christian guy, was the open-minded one. He, as the secular liberal professor, was the closed-minded one. It changed the whole dynamic of our class. Third question you have, yeah, go ahead. Well, yeah, give us that one real quick and then I wanna to move okay. to another topic. Yeah, sure, the, the third one is, is uh, what happens if you are wrong? Because you start asking people their questions, they always assume that they are right. But if they're wrong, then their whole world has to change. And that's a question that leaves a pebble in their shoe. And they have to they have to consider it. They have to dwell on it. 
Sure. And just while we have you, I want to get your take on this report from, it's a Democratic memo. It declares, quote, the rise of white Christian nationalism is a national security threat. This is a document that arguing that Trump has, quote, empowered the religious right in ways no other administration has before, making significant advances in enacting their Christian nationalist agenda. And we saw certain uh, individuals and ideas also similar to this under the Obama administration in terms of targeting Christian nationalism, as they call it. And it seems that we might have a redux coming here again in the Biden administration. What's your reaction to this? Speaking of sticky conversations. The idea of Christian nationalism, as they're framing it, is is a boogeyman that does not exist. The fact is this. If you are an atheist or a minority or somebody in the LGBTQ community, the very safest place in the entire world you can be is in a majority Christian nation or in a nation that was founded on Judeo-Christian principles. And I can prove that. Actually, as part of my research, I went to a, a gay and lesbian uh, travel site the other day, and they listed the top 25 nations that are safe for gay people to travel to. All 25 of them are majority Christian nations. Everybody understands the reality here. What's going on is a political game to try to marginalize religious groups because they have increasingly become smarter about being influential. And what about the top 25 worst? The top 25 worst were all, um, they were all Muslim countries except for two. And none of them were Christian countries. So when you see a report like this, where basically, so the proposal outlines what it says is they want to reverse certain policies and proactively implement new rules that would restore secularism to federal governance and disentangle entrenched religious interest from federal policies. What do you think they're talking about there specifically? I think they want a new religion to take the place of Christians who've been involved. Remember, secularism isn't neutral. Secularism is also a religious worldview. A religion is any set of beliefs about the cause, nature, and purpose of the universe. So it, a secularism is very definitely a belief. It's just an anti-Christian belief. So don't fall for this idea that we have to get away from being Christian and back toward neutral. There's no neutral. All right, Jeff Myers, president of Summit Ministries. We appreciate your perspective. Thanks, Carrie. And stay with us, folks. We've got a lot more coming up here, uh, more tips, and including a Christmas album from my colleague that I think you're going to want to listen to. It will relax you. It will put you in the Christmas mood. His name, his name is Alex Nitzberg, and we're going to give you just a little sampling so that you can go and get it for yourself. Stay with us, folks. We'll be right back. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hey there, good morning and welcome back to Just the News AM. I am Carrie Sheffield and glad you're with us this holiday week. So let's talk about Madison Cawthorn. He is the youngest member of Congress who's going to be coming in. He's a congressman-elect from North Carolina. He had this to say. Take a look. Going to Washington is not a career. It is a mission that you are called to. 
And I see a lot of great North Carolina supporters right here. And just as I said, I vow to you that I will go to Washington to fight for you, to do the right thing. I, I realize that it is incumbent upon me to do what is right. And so I'm going to alter my speech quite a bit. And I've, I know my comms team and all my advisors are probably freaking out right now. Uh, but my friends, I, I've been studying our Constitution. And when you look at it, it says that state legislators are the only body that can change election law within their own states. But when you look at what's happened in a lot of these liberal swing states that have liberal governors and liberal secretaries of state, you can see that they have broken the law and gone against our Constitution with this election. And so, because of that, on January 6th, as the people of Western North Carolina sent me to Washington to do a job, I will be contesting the election. And there you can see the crowd is going wild down in Florida when he says he wants to contest the election. He's not the only congressman elect. There's also an actual congressman currently who is from the state of Alabama, Mo Brooks, who says he wants to challenge as well. I want to put up a headline here from conservatives calling on state legislators to appoint new electors in accordance with the Constitution. So there's a whole group of other conservative leaders that the president tweeted out and said that they think that the evidence is overwhelming to show, to show that in key battleground states, as the result of a coordinated pressure campaign by Democrats and allied groups, violated the Constitution, state and federal law in changing mail-in voting rules that resulted in unlawful and invalid certification of Biden victories. There is a long list of conservative leaders who signed on to this, and the president took note, and he tweeted it out. And also, the issue of whether or not on January 6th that the electors will go ahead and, and certify or Congress will recognize the certification. That is where the president is looking to put pressure. He's calling on his supporters to come to Congress and have or come to Washington and have a massive demonstration to push back on this. It is certainly a very much uphill battle, but of course we'll be reporting on all of this. I also want to talk about a Democratic memo here declaring the rise of white Christian nationalism is a national security threat. So this is a document that Democrats put out and they're arguing that Trump has, quote, empowered the religious right in ways that no other administration has before, making significant advances in enacting their Christian nationalist agenda. The proposal outlines recommendations for reversing certain policies and proactively implementing new rules that would, quote, restore secularism to federal governance and disentangle entrenched religious interest from federal policy. Now, Christian leaders have a lot to say about this. Uh, a lot of them say that this uh, is, on its very face, offensive, on its very face, that it is really just attacking Christians. Um, and I want to bring in Eric Metaxas on this topic. Good morning, Eric. Hi, Eric. Hello there. Great to see you. Great to see you. So we were just talking about this Democratic memo that's declaring a rise of white Christian nationalism is a national security threat. What's your reaction to this memo? Are, are we live? We're live. Okay, I, can't <laughs> I can't say the words that I wanted to say. What a pity, because I thought, honestly, we have to get serious in this country. And when people say things that are utterly outlandish, that are preposterous, that are dumb, that are ignorant, we've just got to call it out. We've got to stop pretending to take them seriously. There's nothing dumber than that statement. 
is just so ridiculous. People are, some of them are actually convinced that these things are true. So you have to have grace for them and pray for them. The other people will say anything and do anything to get political power. There's just nothing dumber that I've ever heard. When people talk about things like that, I, I just, I'm aghast. What, what is there to say? I mean, I am in touch with innumerable Christian leaders, many of whom are white. Uh, and whenever I'm hanging out with these white Christians, there's tons of Christians of color around everywhere I go. And so this is just preposterous. Uh, and we have to kind of the first thing we have to do is laugh in their face and say that this is we're not going to take you seriously. You don't have a better argument. In fact, you have no argument. So this is the kind of thing you say to confuse people. This, this is just absolutely nonsensical. I mean, as somebody who would know, uh, I can just tell you that uh, it's, it's just it's really silly, Carrie. I mean, it's so silly. We have to be careful not to take it in. Well, it's interesting because even The Atlantic, which is certainly no conservative publication, reported about a study that found that Christian conservatives are actually much more tolerant when it comes to gender issues, racial issues, immigration even, that it is actually secular conservatives who are far more intolerant. And that's a fact. Oh, that, that's an absolute fact. Look, all the churches uh, that I go to, or most of them, are, are diverse ethnically, racially, that's a simple fact. And so what you have is you have secular people so unfamiliar with the Christian world that they create these caricatures. They don't. In other words, a real journalist would know what they're talking about, would do the research, would go to these churches. They don't do that. Uh, so shame on them for ever discussing anything about which they're so completely ignorant and about which they refuse to do real homework, real journalistic homework. But it's a simple fact. And that's why I laugh. I don't take it seriously. I mean, the church where I met my wife, there there were uh, as many blacks and as many Hispanics and as many uh, Asians as there were whites. In fact, right. even more. Eric, and we got to leave it right there. The Thank you so right. much, Eric. We appreciate it. We're going to be right back with your musical snack. Hey there, good morning, and welcome back to Just the News AM. I am Carrie Sheffield. So I want to end the show on a beautiful musical note. Our colleague here at Just the News AM, he's got a hidden talent. Well, it's not so hidden anymore. His name is Alex, Alex Nitzberg, and he's got a new album out, and I want to play a sample for you. Alex is an incredibly talented musician. You can hear him, he's playing his guitar there. I think we've also got a sample of him with some original compositions that he writes on for piano. And I would encourage all of our viewers here to take a look. You can get him on Spotify, on iTunes. Uh, I personally went and got his What Child Is This Song on 
iTunes and it is so relaxing. It just puts you in the right mood for the holidays. Um, we're going to keep playing this here for the show. I want to encourage you to stay tuned right here on Real America's Voice for War Room. And in the meantime, I want to wish everybody happy holidays, happy Hanukkah, and a very Merry Christmas to all of you. I hope you're able to celebrate with the people that you love. I hope you're able to celebrate the reason for the season, which is joy and light and peace. Uh, and hope you enjoy this beautiful music and this beautiful season because it's all about joy to the world and we wish that to you here at Real America's Voice. Joy to the world, joy to all of you. We will see you tomorrow.